0: Thank All right, well, hey, good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing? Good, good, awesome. Good to see you all. Thanks for tuning in on the live stream. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here. Uh, Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series going through 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. We're going to start by just reading this text out loud together. Verses will be on the screen, so join me in reading God's Word together. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you with mouths full of praise. We come before you just thanking you that today is a day we wake up with your mercy anew that whatever happened yesterday is covered by your blood, Jesus, and whatever happens tomorrow is covered, that we are a people who rest in your covering, Lord Jesus. So we thank you. We honor you, Jesus, for how good you are to your people, how faithful you are to your people. We honor you, and we say thank you for your posture for us, your posture towards us, that you are with us, and you've gone before us, and we thank you, God. You've clothed us with garments of praise, fullness of mercy, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You lavish your grace upon us. Thank you, God. So come, Holy Spirit, and we ask that you just have your way with your word. Pray you'd magnify Jesus this morning. Show us, show us the way of the cross. Show us, teach us, Holy Spirit, what it means to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow in his footsteps wherever he may want to take us. We want nothing else in our hearts but to know Jesus and to follow him. And I pray that the shackles of fear, the love of comfort, anything at all that would hinder us from fully following where Jesus wants to lead us would be broken off of us today. Jesus, please, we, we ask that you would do that. Give us that grace, Lord Jesus. So come Holy Spirit, have your way and would you increase and would I decrease up here? And pray this in your name, amen. All right. Well, hey, this past week, uh, I was uh, at one of my my favorite vacation spots this week with my family, the Outer Banks. Anyone here been to the Outer Banks? Yeah, it was awesome. Loved it. Had a great time. Uh, If you go to the beach in September, you're going to get like gale force winds. So other than like my kids almost flying away on the the beach, it was a great vacation. Um, But uh, at the trip, you know, it was with my my, my parents, my kids' grandparents, and uh, my sister and brother-in-law. had a great time, and uh, something that brought a smile to my face this trip was, you know, my dad is, my dad's kind of like my grandfather, just a funny guy, always cracking jokes, and so for my youngest daughter, Stephanie, he would pretend to kind of say her name incorrectly. He would say, hey, Stephanopoulos, or, you know, whatever, name Stephanie, and what, what brought a smile to my face was the, my, my respo- the response of my, my youngest daughter, who's about two and a half year, years old, and she would go, when my, when my dad would say this, she would go, I'm not Stephanopoulos. I, Steffi, Gase, Steffi and Grace is her. Grace is her middle name. And I was like, "At a girl? That's right. That's right. You defend you." And, and so, so what we. And this is a segue. This is going somewhere for my sermon. But, but, <laughs> just a shameless name drop for my kid over there. Anyways, um, I was so proud of her because what I saw in that moment is that she kindly, respectfully affirmed and defended the truth of who she was when her identity was slandered, okay? And that's what kind of Peter is talking about in our text today. Peter is writing, we know the historical context, we've been going through 1 Peter for a couple of months now. Peter is writing to Christians who are being slandered and persecuted for their faith. Accusations were being hurled at them that they were a threat to the Roman Empire. And because of that, they were uh, both verbally and physically persecuted for per- professing Jesus Christ as Lord and not Caesar as Lord. And Peter writing in this text and, and throughout First Peter uh, in general, he's saying it's not if church, but when these accusations come, you and I need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within us, and to do that, and to give that defense with gentleness and respect. And last week, if you were here last week, Jeff mentioned this idea of in First Peter, there's this mega theme of we as the church the body of Christ, we're called to show off the glory of God. I love that. Show off the glory of God. And so when we're persecuted and we bless and pray for and are kind and respond with kindness to those who are persecuting us, we're showing off the glory of our Savior. We're doing what Jesus did when he was crucified and praying for the very ones who are putting him to death. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. We're showing off Jesus to the watching world when we respond in that way, when we're persecuted and facing suffering. And that's what Jeff talked about last week. He says God's glory, a.k.a. what he's truly like, needs to be seen and known to the watching world through his church. Through his church. What a great honor, what a great privilege we have as the people of God to show off the glory of God through both what we say and what we do. And this is Peter's hope throughout this letter in our text today is that when believers are accused as as hate-filled bigots and actually suffer for their faith in Jesus, that both their words and their works would present a sort of knockdown argument for the beauty and goodness of God and the truthfulness of his gospel and how we respond when we're maligned and uh, are facing suffering so that when people look at our lives and they see what we're going through for the sake of Christ. And, and, and we're clinging to the hope we have in Jesus, we're saying, even if my circumstances change, I won't lose my hope because that's how valuable Jesus is to me. And so that's where I think God's glory shines the greatest, is in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution. So that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today in this text. Three things. One, we're going to be looking at the choice of our suffering. I'll explain what that means here in a moment. The defense of our suffering. And lastly, the Lord over our suffering. There's a sovereign Lord over our suffering. So the first thing we're looking at today is the choice of our suffering. Looking at verses 13 and 14 again and 17. This is what Peter says. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And skipping ahead to 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So right out of the gate here, it seems like Peter is kind of offering up two options to the early church. Two options of suffering. Kind of like choose your own suffering adventure, right? He's saying you can either suffer for doing that which is good or, or face suffering for doing that which is bad. Quick disclaimer here, not all suffering is our choice, right? We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. There's things that happen to us where we're all going to face suffering that's out of our control. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. The suffering that Peter is talking about here is suffering that comes to us based upon our conduct. Suffering that we kind of invite, in a way, for either doing things and saying things that are good and right, or saying and doing things that are foolish and bad. And so the first thing we'll talk about is bad suffering, okay? What Peter's talking about when he's saying suffering for doing evil, he's, 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 this is just standard biblical common sense. He's, it's, it's saying, if, if you act like a fool, you're going to reap a fool's reward. And the principle behind why Peter is saying that is, is, is this is, church, we are going to be hated for being Christians. Jesus promised us that in the Gospels. He said, You will be hated for my name's sake. Jesus promises us that. And what Peter is saying is, listen, we are going to be hated for being Christians. Let's not be hated for being really bad Christians, really foolish Christians, right? That's what he's saying. And often in the news, really famous or popular Christians will have a moral failure, and, um, and, and, and they'll face suffering for that. That suffering isn't called persecution for them being Christians. That's suffering for their bad choices, Okay? And that's the distinction We're often sometimes in the church, if anything uh, uh, comes against us, we say it's persecution and suffering, when in fact, there's actually a type of suffering here where we just might actually be making bad decisions. And by the grace of, of God, we're always offered repentance. But if, if we're refusing for decades to live in willful unrepentance, there's going to be consequences to that. And uh, what Peter is saying here is he's saying, listen, the world, the world is is, is, is not too, doesn't take too kindly to Jesus and to his followers. So don't make it easy. Don't make it easy for them, right? Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Keep close watch over your hearts and your souls and your minds. And this is what leads Peter to say this in verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, right? And that's what we learn is that if you and I as followers of Jesus are abounding in, in good works and our communities and we're known, we're just known for following Jesus, Right? Look, when people see us, they see Jesus in what we say and what we do. We're known for love. We're known for compassion. We're known for kindness. We're known for joy. We're known for radical generosity. We're known for hospitality. If that is what we as the church, as believers, are known for, what can we be charged with? Right? From the watching world. Like, what are your neighbors going to say? Oh, that, you know, uh, that Scott guy, he's just such a good neighbor. Right? Yeah, he's always cooking us dinner, and he's always opening up his houses. He's just so generous. Oh I'm, just, oh, I'm so mad at him, right? Like, that's what Peter is saying here. So if we are, as the church, have zeal for good works, like, that's our, our joy. That's our passion is to advance the kingdom of God through doing good works, which in Titus and all throughout the New, New Testament were commanded to be devoted to. The watching world, the, their, their accusations against us being full of hatred and, and judgment and all that stuff will fall flat. When there's an avalanche of evidence that, hey, like we're following in the footsteps of Jesus with kindness and compassion and word and deed. And that's what Peter is kind of saying here with that is that our lives should be so abounding in love for others that when the accusations come and we're put on trial for being a, a hate filled bigot, if you will, that in a way we can call to the witness stand just through how we've been living our lives uh, a ton of witnesses and evidence to the fact that, hey, um, you know, that's, that's not true. That's not true. By the grace of God, that's not true. And, uh, and, and then Peter gives a disclaimer in verses 14 and 17. What Peter is not saying to the church, the persecuted church, that, hey, if you just start doing good things, that you'll get a get out of persecution free card. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, yes, just because we're followers of Jesus, naturally we should do what Jesus did and abound in good works. But there's a point, what Peter is talking about, there is a transition. There will be a point where others who are not Christians will bless you for seeing the good that that you are doing. And that blessing from man will shift to cursing. And that threshold, that point, is usually when you start talking about Jesus and the gospel, right? And that's often the danger um, with just wanting to do good works because it's great because everyone loves that. And you're loved by everyone when you help an elderly lady cross the street. Like nobody's going to publicly shame you for doing that, right? They feel good, you feel good, all that stuff. When you help her across the street and she asks you why you did that and then you start telling her about the hope of Jesus, that's where the blessing often shifts from cursing because the gospel is offensive, right? The gospel is offensive. And that's where the offense lies. And that's when the shifting comes uh, from blessing to cursing. And we would call this good-suffering. We would call this suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for doing good, suffering for out of love for others testifying that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ in John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the most exclusive statement in the world, and it's also the most loving statement in the world that you could ever tell anyone, that there is a way to the Father. That there is a way for your sins to be forgiven. There is a way for you to escape eternal separation from God. And there is a way for you to be reconciled to God and live in his presence, fullness of joy forevermore. That's great news. That's great news. If people are willing to accept that free gift of salvation. And so then the question that we're faced with, the dilemma that we're faced with faced with as Christians is that when we get to that point where our neighbors or our employers or coworkers will no longer bless us, but curse us, for our faith in Christ, what will we do when that persecution, when that slander comes as we're in love sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them? And the two choices that we often in our flesh run to are these two choices, fight or flight, right? Like our natural instinct when someone slanders us or curses us or reviles us is what? All right, you slander me, I slander you back, right? You talk bad about my mama, I'm gonna talk bad about your mama, so, so on and so forth, right? Like, we're gonna fight. And, and, and this kind of fighting that I'm describing is not contending for the faith. It's not fighting the good fight of faith. I would call this being jerks for Jesus, <laughs> right? Like, take off your WWJD band and put on your, your JFJ band, like jerks for Jesus band, and, and just start, start saying, all right, I'm attacking you. You attack me, I'm attacking you. You say this about me, then I'm attacking you, right? And often, if you just, uh, for, I don't know, five seconds, turn on your Facebook and look at your newsfeed, that's exactly what's happening on social media, unfortunately. And then the second option is flight. And this is more tragic. And we've seen this a lot in the news these past couple of years where well-known worship leaders and well-known pastors, they're at this dilemma point. And a lot of us are at this dilemma point in our culture where the rhetoric is being ramped up against the Christian faith and people are beginning to ask questions. Well, wait, do I really believe this? Is this really true? And flight is saying, persecution is here. I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to flee. Maybe I'll change my stance. Or, or, or worse than that, maybe I'll just say, hey, deuces, Jesus, I'm out of here. I'm switching teams. I'm with these guys now, okay? And um, what's interesting about both of these responses, fight and flight, is it reveals a complete lack of faith and trust in God. A complete lack of faith in God. There's there's zero trust in God if you think you have to pick up your weapons and start duking it out with other people and slander them. It's actually the biggest act of faith, which is our third option, which I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a a leap of, of, of massive faith to not curse when you're cursed, but to bless them and to pray for them because you're entrusting yourself and you're entrusting them into the hands of God, not into your own hands. Both responses reveal a complete lack of trust in God. His existence, his sovereignty, his ability, and his desire to both save and fight for you as his beloved son and his beloved daughter. And so both responses we see abandon trust in God and place all trust in self. Where We say, if God won't fight, I will. If God won't fight for me, I'm picking up my weapons, I'm gonna fight. Or if God won't fight, it means he's not there, so I'm abandoning my faith in God. And so I'm going to flee. And the much better option that we're called to, uh, I took a cabin retreat earlier uh, this month uh, for a couple of days. And I just went through the Gospel of Matthew and did just a word study on every time Jesus spoke about faith. It was, I had this, uh, this whole legal pad of everything that Jesus talked about faith. It was, it was mind-blowing. And we have a third option, faith, trust in God that when the suffering comes, when the persecution comes, he's still on the throne. He's going to look after me. He is my good shepherd who is with me in the valley of the shadow of death, clinging to the Jesus in in the midst of suffering, knowing and believing that he is Lord over my suffering and promises to bless me in the persecution. And I would posit this is the only way it's possible to love and pray for those who persecute us and seek to harm us and to suffer for Jesus is by entrusting ourselves into the hands of our God and his promises to us in his word. First Peter 3, 9. Jeff talked about this last week. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. This is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you, Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It is great in heaven. There's a promise given by our Savior to us that when we are slandered, When we are persecuted for Jesus, and in the face of that, the face of that suffering, we pray for and love our persecutors, you and I are promised by Jesus a great, words of Jesus, great heavenly reward. Great heavenly reward. And therefore, Jesus encourages us, rejoice, be glad. There's debate upon what that reward is, but what we see here, I'm not going to get into the details of what scholars think that those rewards are. What we know is that Jesus is in the business of wanting to bless and reward his followers when they glorify him. Jesus says, that that brings a smile to my face when you do that. And I'm going to bless you. There's a great, so when we face persecution, we say, hey, keep the insults coming. You are helping me fully fund my heavenly 401k. Great heavenly rewards. Boom. Cha-ching. Keep it comment, Yes, cha-ching. Like hopefully it's it's because I'm 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 testifying to the gospel and Jesus. Hopefully it's not bad suffering where I'm just being a bad Christian. But when those persecutions come, I was like, hey, you're fully funding my retirement plan. Thank you. Right? And what we see is the author of this letter was the Apostle Peter, right? The author of 1 Peter is a, is a man who lived and who walked and and, 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 and was with Jesus as, as as one of his followers, the Apostle Peter himself. And in Acts 5, um the Peter and the apostles are arrested and they're put on trial by the Sanhedrin. And uh, the Peter who once denied... Jesus, three times before his death and resurrection, is now boldly standing before the same people that were responsible for crucifying Jesus and saying, I do not fear you. I fear and obey God. And then he shares the gospel with them in Acts 5. And the Pharisees, all of a sudden, like, you know, a a light bulb explodes in their head and they start getting in a fury and, and are debating each other on what they should do with these apostles who they arrested And uh, this is the decision that these Pharisees have for these apostles, uh, these eyewitnesses of Jesus who are sharing the gospel that Jesus Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's resurrected. Acts 5, 40 through 41. And by the way, this is Peter. Peter in this text is lumped in with the apostles here. And when they had called in, the the Sanhedrin called in uh, the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, watch this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's crazy, church. That's crazy. And this is what's so crazy. Like like, like in our flesh, the natural response when we face suffering and persecution is lament, it's sorrow, it's grief, it's confusion. Jesus, where are you in this? I thought, you know, this wasn't what I signed up for. What's going on? These guys are rejoicing. And what I read in the New Testament, we're called to rejoice in our suffering. The words of Jesus in Matthew 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. That that's the Christian response. And that's what we see Peter do here, is these guys are leaving the, the trial, the imprisonment, the, the, the getting beaten up, and they are, imagine this, them they are praising God. Thank you, God, for the bruises. Thank you, God, for the limp. Thank you, God, for the pain. Why? Because we've been counted worthy to share in the sufferings of our Savior we're following in his footsteps. What an honor. What an honor that is. And I think oftentimes when we face persecution, we think it's something to be, you know, ashamed about. And what we learn in scripture is persecution is a badge of honor for believers in the church. Not that we should seek out suffering, but as we're faithfully following Jesus and doing and saying what he tells us to do, Um, and we face persecution for that, it's a badge of honor because it means we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, and he greatly rewards those who suffer for his sake. So any scars or wounds that we get for following and seeking to obey and share Jesus with others, the one who is wounded and scarred for us, it is seen in scripture as a reason to rejoice, not to lament rejoice not to lament. And the question that we in the 21st century church in the West need to ask ourselves, as as we are facing the dilemma where where once Christianity was seen as being a blessing in society, where now it's being seen as a cancer, um, is this question. Are you and I willing to suffer any loss for the sake of following Jesus? That's the question that we need to wrestle with, I think, this morning based upon this text. Are we willing to suffer financial loss? Uh, Threat to safety, comfort, loss of friendships. Are we willing, loss of reputation? Are we willing to suffer any loss for the one who gave everything, the one who lost his life so that we could have received life in his name? Are we willing to do that for the name of Jesus? And we'll talk furthermore in the conclusion about that. Uh, The next thing we see is the defense of our suffering. The defense of our suffering. We as Christians are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. And then as we're suffering in the midst of that, when the accusations come, we're put on trial, as these Christians were. Uh, we're called to give a defense for that, for the hope that's within us. Verse 14, have no fear of them. This is Peter talking. uh, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The opposite of fear is faith in Christ. It says, have faith in your good shepherd who is with you in the valley of the shadow. Have no fear of them. Do not fear a man. Fear the Lord. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put the same shame so the scenario peter gives is that when you've reached that transition point from blessing to cursing you're facing persecution you're going to be asked to give a defense for the hope that is within you in the midst of your suffering just like he did and 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 this and this word defense is a legal term it, it's 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 the the greek word uh ap- ap- apologia where we get the word apologetics it's not apologizing it's a legal term where literally uh, like what peter is talking about hey when you are put on trial as a christian and you're being prosecuted for your faith, be prepared to respond with a reasonable defense for your reasonable faith in Jesus. And so, yes, it's the context of both. Christian, you might be arrested and tried and put on trial. And yes, at the barbecue, at the neighbor's house, you might be, in a many way, put on a mock trial of sorts where you're being persecuted for your faith. Either way, be prepared to give a reasonable defense to your reasonable faith. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the first thing I want to talk about in regards to this text specifically is this, is, what is often missed miss when we preach this text, this text, if you've been in the church for a while, um, is the classic go-to text on apologetics and evangelism and sharing your faith, as it rightly should be. Um, but often what is missed when we when we, you know, we read about this text or preach this text or whatever is the fact that honoring Christ the Lord as holy in your heart precedes the command to defend the hope that's within you. Does that make sense? Verse 15 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as ho- holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. we might ask the question, well, what does, what does uh, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy have to do with evangelism, have to do with apologetics, have to do with defending and sharing your faith to those who are not Christians? And I would say it has absolutely everything to do with apologetics and sharing your faith because it's hard to defend someone you don't know and love. And it's hard, if not downright impossible, to defend a hope that you don't possess, right? We can't give something we don't have. We can't give something we don't have. And the simple truth is this, is that you and I passionately defend what we are most passionate about, right? You and I passionately defend what we are most passionate about. And if you accept that premise, then the next premise follows deduction follows. So therefore, if we have no love and passion for Jesus, there will be no need to defend that which we don't really care that much about. Simple truth, you and I passionately defend what we are most passionate about, deduction. If we have no love and passion for Jesus, there won't be any need to defend Jesus that we don't care that much about. So the problem with, um, the lack of evangelism in the church, I would say it's not, it's not just an issue of competency, of us not knowing how to reasonably defend our reasonably faith. It's an issue first of our hearts and where Christ is seated in our hearts. Um, and I think the problem we face in the church that we'll, that, we're, that we'll always be waging war against our hearts, and we see this in, you know, we just read through Revelation, the CBR, we see one of the indictments of the church was, was lukewarmness. Uh, and Christ asking them to return to the passion they had at first. But the problem I think we face in the church is we're just passionate about other things, not Jesus, right? We, we just get passionate and worked up about other things rather than Jesus. And so then we'll do a ton of research about other things we're really passionate about to defend those with anger and, and rage or whatever. All the while, we sideline Jesus and say, oh, like, I guess he, you know, he, don't, really, don't really worry about that. I care more about this. Right? And so at the vacation uh, house this past week, you know, I don't have cable uh, at my house, so I can't really watch that, that many sports, but football is back. Anyone here excited about football being back? I am so excited, right? About being football being back. And so I watched a ton of football this past week. And then the Stanley Cup finals, ice hockey was, was on this week. So I watched a ton of sports. Man, I was like, I was fired up. It was awesome. Like, I just, I love sports, and particularly football and, uh, and hockey. But what's so interesting is that, you know, I couldn't help but think in my own life and in, uh, the church, you know, sometimes we research and defend our favorite sports team more than we do our savior and our redeemer, right? Like if I were to trash, you know, the Patriots, to so the Patriots fans here, there would be there, you 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 know how many rings are on Brady's finger, right? And you know all the stats and all this stuff, right? Right? But when it comes to our precious Redeemer who died to save us, who gives us mercies new every morning, do we share that same passion? That same, that same joy, that same delight, that it just brings us joy to be able to raise our competency to share and defend him so that others, so that others can share in that joy that we have in Jesus. It's gotta be sincere. Our, our, our sharing and defending our faith has to be sincere. And, and, and you might be asking, okay, well, what does it mean to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts? I love the way John Piper says this. John Piper, speaking on this text, says this. This is the way John Piper would, would answer that question. What does it mean to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts? This is what he says. It means to put him in a category by himself, the highest place, the greatest value, the most supreme treasure, the greatest admiration, the most cherished prize, the one you esteem and honor and love the most out of all persons and all things in the world, right? That's what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's your precious treasure. He is everything. We, Jeff and I were, had the blessing of being part of a relaunch for our sister church legacy and uh, Spanish-speaking church. And for his uh, ordination, they asked the pastor, who is Jesus to you? And in Spanish, one word. He said, I believe it was, todo. Everything. Everything. And, and I was remembering my high school Spanish before they translated it. And I, and I go, oh my gosh. That's a beautiful, he didn't give the seminary answer. He said, in your heart, where is Jesus? In your heart, who is Jesus? And he goes, everything, everything. Oh, it's beautiful, so beautiful. And uh, for those of us here today and, you know, I just read that John Piper quote, and you feel like, man, just convicted that your hearts have grown lukewarm or, or apathetic, and, and you're like, I haven't been honoring Christ the Lord as holy, and I, I want that joy in Jesus. I want that love, that passion, that delight in him in my walk with him. I don't have that. The good news is, is Jesus is always waiting with open arms for you to come to him just as you are. You don't need to muster up the strength. You, don't need, you just come to him with your lack and let him fill you. And so today, if, if, if you're saying, I don't have this in my life right now, I'm feeling apathetic, I'm feeling maybe overburdened, maybe my passion is for other things, than Jesus, cry out to him today in faith and be honest with him and say, Jesus, I want more of you. I want to be set on fire for you. I got a text from my friend a couple of weeks ago. He says, Nick, join me in praying that the Lord sets me on fire in this season. And I said, I will absolutely join you in that prayer. He's going on a road trip with Jesus, essentially. And he's like, pray that Jesus will set, I just want Jesus to set me on fire. I'm like, yes. Like That's awesome. That's a prayer that glorifies God. It glorifies God when we show the world that he is is above our circumstances. He's more precious to us than comfort. He is more precious to us than political alliances. He's more precious to us than financial future security. He is everything to us. That brings glory to him in the midst of loss. Is when we say, Jesus is better. You can change my circumstances. You can't change my Savior, my Redeemer, who's with me in the midst of those circumstances. That shows off the glory of God. And if we don't have that Great news, you have a gracious redeemer. You have a father who's waiting at his porch, waiting for you to come back. Arms are running, just as you are. Just come to him with your need and ask him to fill you afresh. Jesus invites us in his gospel, ask, seek, knock. It'll be given to you. John 16. Until now you haven't asked for anything of my name. Ask so that your joy may be complete. John 16. He loves it when his kids come to him. Those are prayers that bring a smile to his face. And so, in light of everything I just shared we are still called as Christians to be able to articulate a reasonable defense for our hope in Jesus at all times. Uh, We don't get to get out of studying apologetics or or doing the research um, in light of just honoring Christ the Lord as holy. I'm just saying that precedes uh, the command, our obedience to command, to be prepared always in season, out of season, to give it defense for those who would ask us for the hope that is uh, within us. And so the archer, overarching principle that Peter shares of how we should defend our faith when we are slandered or when people are, uh, uh, you know, hurling objections at the Christian worldview, we should do it with gentleness and respect, right? And we've talked about this at length in this series, is that even though the, the culture has lost civil discourse, we don't have to lose civil discourse, because we follow Jesus and we can show them what Jesus is like in the face of those kind of difficult conversations we might be having with a precious loved one or so on and so forth. That's the overarching principle. And then kind of three methods um, that I wanna talk about, about apologetics. This is not comprehensive. These methods for apologetics aren't comprehensive, but it helps, I think, frame what it looks like to defend your faith. And so the first thing, the first method for defending and sharing our faith that I wanna look at is just personal testimony just sharing with others what Jesus has done for you, how he has radically transformed your life. And that's what's so interesting for some of you, your story when you first came to know Jesus or you knew someone who first came to know Jesus, new converts always lead like a truckload of people to Jesus and they don't even know what evangelism or apologetics means or is, right? They don't know all the arguments, but they, all they know is essentially what the, the blind man who was healed by Jesus knew in John 9. I was once blind, but now I see. And everyone, all, all their friends who they used to, you know, whatever, uh, do pagan things with, they see the tangible joy, the tangible love, the cha- tangible change in that person's life, and that's enough evidence that they need to say, I want what you have. Because you have something that I don't have, and the only change that could come about because I've known you forever is a supernatural change. It's a supernatural change. I know, I know you. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do this on your own. Somebody else did this for you. Who is it? His name is Jesus, right? And so I love, one of my favorite gospels is the gospel of John, and I love John 9. Uh, John 9, Jesus heals uh, a blind man. And the Pharisees, uh, religious people, just really just don't like Jesus too much, and, and, and they get all fired up when Jesus heals people. And so the Pharisees bring this guy in and his parents, and they start questioning him, questioning him. And this is what, uh, they, uh, th- this is what the <clears throat> conversation looks like in John nine twenty four through 25, so for the second time, the Pharisees called the man who had been, what a great description, the man who had been blind. That's what Jesus does for us, right? Nick, the man who once, who once was under his own sins and was a children, child, of, child of wrath, but now he's a child of God. The man who was once blind. I love that. That's what Jesus does, right? The man who once had been blind, and he said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, talking about Jesus, this man is a sinner. And the blind man, the man who was once blind, answered him, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, baby, that though I was blind, now I see. And none of the Pharisees were arguing about the miracle. That was the evidence. We know you are blind, but curse the man who healed you. Right? That's what they were saying. We don't like this Jesus guy. We know we can't argue that, but we want to make sure that you're not following this guy. He says, I don't, I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers, but one thing I do—I was—and there's power in that. And uh, my wife and I—we uh, served as volunteers in, in a ministry called Young Life for a while, working with high school students. And one of the one of the common things when they talked about you sharing your personal testimony. and uh, Beautiful thing with Young Life is is so many uh, students come to faith in Jesus through their their um, their ministry model of relational, incarnational ministry. My wife is one of those people who came to know Jesus through the ministry of Young Life in high school, and uh, they would always say this. You can't argue a changed life. So they say, that's the power of your testimony. You can't argue a changed life. And so we get, to, we get to testify to the goodness of God. When we share our stories, it's not about us being awesome and choosing Jesus. It's about, hey, hey I was blind and now I see. My life was a mess, but now I have Jesus, right? Like, like, like that's what it is, sharing what Jesus has done. And then the, the second uh, kind of methodology, if you will, to apologetics is a defense, a defense, defending the truthfulness of the Christian worldview. And our faith in Christ. This looks like, in our conversations with others, sharing proofs for the existence of God. Uh, that we see in creation and nature, the proofs for the inspiration of Scripture, the validity of the resurrection, uh, so on and so forth. So we share those proofs, those evidences of the veracity of the Christian worldview while also answering objections and attacks to our worldview. Like how can a good God allow evil and suffering? And and, and science and the Christian faith are incompatible. And listen, for us to grow in this area, to be obedient to the text of being able to give a defense, it comes through study. It comes through hard work. It comes through labor. It, it comes through raising our competency, which means that we might need to put other books down that we're reading and pick up other books. It might need, that we need to stop watching other things just for entertainment and start watching uh, apologetics videos. And there's an avalanche of resources that are, are available to us to raise our competency in those things. I'm a, I am was an apologetics hobbyist for a really long time and took a couple apologetic classes in, uh, in seminary. And so, uh, open invite to, if you want some more resources after this service, um, books or videos, or whatever, come and talk to me. I would be glad to talk to you and point you to some great places where you can start studying and raising your competency. And when you do that, when you start reading these books and hearing these lectures, all of a sudden this avalanche of confidence comes over you. go, oh my gosh, I have a reasonable faith. This is not madness. This is not blind faith at all. This is actually very reasonable. Really reasonable. And then, and then it leads to this. I think often when we talk about apologetics, we just stay in personal testimony and defense land and we never go on offense. Offense. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense or vice versa, whatever. But we, the third thing that we need to, I think what's on my heart is when we're sharing our faith is to get off the turnbuckles as Christians and to start saying, all right, let me kindly and graciously point out um, how do I say this graciously? What's in my notes? Um, pitfalls in your worldview as well. We as Christians are not just called to have to answer and defend our worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody does. And everybody, worldview are assumptions about the world. Why are we here? Is there anything right or wrong? Is there good or evil? Where do we go when we die? What is the best life that could be lived? So on and so forth. Everyone has presuppositions about the universe that frame your conduct. And so, we're not the only ones who have to sit back on the turnbuckles and give it offense. We can go on the offense, okay? And so, in, in a good way, in a kind way. And that's what kind of drives me nuts when you watch interviews of people on the news and they'll, they'll you know, be like, is abortion a sin? You know, just blindside these Christians that they invite and just blindside them. And, and, and I'm just like, do what Jesus did. Jesus always answered test traps with a question. Ask the person, is there anything wrong with anything? It's a great question. Is there anything wrong with anything? Yes. How do you arrive at that truth? How do you arrive at that truth? Because last time I checked, you're a, you might be a naturalist, which means that from nothing we came to nothing we return, human life has no more value than a cricket. So what's all this talk about equality? What's all this talk about justice? Last time I checked, if you're a naturalist and atheist, you believe morality is subjective. So, why do you keep lambasting accusations against the church based on morality? What's your moral framework? Last time I checked, believing what you believe, all of us are here because of survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, the, the, those in power conquering the weaker, the strong survive. So, what's all this talk about equality? Where do you, what's your philosophical foundation for being so fired up about justice and equality? The Christians have, a, have, a, have a, a great philosophical theological foundation for justice. Humanity is made in the image of God. Everybody has intrinsic value. And we are to treat them with kindness and compassion, no matter who they are. That's where we arrive at value. But it's just, it, it's mind-blowing that a bunch of atheists, sorry, are so fired up about human dignity, when, when we're just more highly evolved, uh, you know, whatever? Where do you arrive at human value and dignity? It's madness. It makes no sense philosophically. And so then, so then they'll adopt Judeo-Christian worldview, ethics, and, 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 and take them as their own. And, it, it, but they can't do that philosophically. So let me illustrate this. I have a friend who's in the LGBTQ community. A really good friend of mine. We we grab lunch. We talk about religion, politics. I've been able to share the gospel with him, and, and he's really passionate about justice issues for the LGBTQ community. It's really been a really good relationship, and for uh, the Lord, uh, anyways. Just just being able to listen and to hear his perspective on the church and seeing what he him and uh, that community have kind of experienced from the church is, is tragic. Um, and uh, took me a while to kind of earn the right to be heard. But all, all that to say is this: is that I. Uh, I asked him kindly, something to the effect that he was talking about this. I say, hey man, I, I know what you believe as a, as a naturalist. Why are you so fired up about justice? Like ultimately it doesn't matter, right? Like you just return to dust. Why not live the most selfish life in the world? Why is helping others even good and noteworthy? Why not just live the most selfish life and look out for yourself? And 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 just ask, I was just asking in love that simple question. Because I was like, I was like, I was like, these are great Christian values that you're you're like, I, I'm with you. Justice and dignity, humans have dignity. But, but knowing what you know philosophically, you're not staying true to your worldview. You're not staying true to the core tenets of your worldview. You're not. You're just not. We are, if we're here and there's, there's no God, there's, there's like this isn't true, and we're here because an explosion happened by complete accident, we are a cruel joke of nature. And everything is meaningless, completely devoid of meaning. Just one cosmic accident. So why in the world would you give your life for justice? It doesn't matter. You're not staying true to your worldview, right? So I think that's where as we study and in love, relationally, earn the right to be heard, we can start getting people to not just attack and attack and attack the Christian faith, but start seeing, whoa, 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 wait a second. What about like, you know what I'm saying? So I I hope that helps you frame that, that we as the church... We should grow in our competency in love, in love and kindness, earning, earning the right to be heard, to share our faith. Yes, give defenses for our faith and also be, uh, be educated, not just on our favorite hobby or sports teams or uh, conspiracy theories or whatever, but be educated on other worldviews so we can, we can graciously and kindly point out the pitfalls of other worldviews as well to amplify Jesus to those that we're talking with. So last thing we're seeing, sorry, ran out of time here is the last point I'm gonna talk about is the Lord over our suffering. Verse 17, this is what Peter says. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Key phrase, if that should be God's will. So the simple plain truth of following Jesus is that the suffering we face for righteousness sake very might be God's will for us. And we need to understand that that Jesus hasn't called us to a life of comfort. He's called us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow in his footsteps. And so what we learn by following Jesus is that the blessed life is not a life free from pain and suffering. The best life is a life lived knowing and following Jesus, no matter where he takes us, no matter where he takes us. And I'll conclude with this illustration Uh, at the beach this week. Uh, the winds were so crazy that the Outer Banks actually flooded. And so my brother-in-law actually had to leave, go back to work. He couldn't leave the island for like three days because he couldn't get off the island. It was just ton of water, ton kind of sand. The beach literally came over Highway 12. And uh, so we're kind of stuck on Avon where we were. was fine, but if you want to go to the grocery store, you had to go through floodwaters. And so me and my wife and my kids were in the car, and the floodwaters weren't weren't that bad if you stayed in the road, okay? But I was like, let's go. Let's go drive it in the water. This is awesome. What's in a lifetime chance, you know? And uh, that's how... Stupid I am. Anyways, uh, so we're we're driving through this, and needless to say, I don't need to go into details of what was taking place. the conversation between my wife and I, but let's just say she didn't have too much trust with who was at the helm of the wheel. So that led me to turn around. Okay, now here's the deal: if you are in minor flood water, and they were like, dude, they were like Priuses going through the water. It wasn't it wasn't that big. Okay, so like I was in an SUV. So I go, so I go, and I take a left into a parking lot. Now what you know about roads is that where the road is, it's high, and then there's ditches, right? So I go, I take a left, I'm still on the road, great, turn around in the parking lot, and then I go to make a right turn out of this parking lot. You know, there's kind of a ditch to the right, a little bit of road. You can't see the road because it's all covered in water, and then there's the road there. And all of a sudden, as I make this right turn, I made it too tight, and all of a sudden, my car turned into a boat for a little bit, and I was like, uh, you could feel the, the tension go out of the wheels, and they're like looking for ground, and thankfully I ended up on Metam that I ended up catching the pavement and was able to get out of there, but there was that moment of like sheer panic, and like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that just that just happened, and uh, anyways, that made for a good uh, discussion uh, that Jen and I had uh, after we got back. Uh, anyways, <laughs> um, we made it safe and sound by God's grace, but listen, oftentimes we think, we think that um, Jesus is only going to lead us to green pastures. And the promise of Psalm 23 is that he's the good shepherd who, yes, leads us beside still waters and green pastures, and yes, is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And that the Christian life, your, your life and mine, is not going to be smooth sailing, is not going to be perfectly safe, uh, danger, danger-free roads. Uh, Jesus is going to lead us where he wants us to go. And the issue that we face, are we going to trust him we're we going to trust him at the wheel of our lives where he's taking us. That's the issue. It's an issue of faith and trust. When we're going to step forward and boldly proclaim and love his gospel in word and deed, it's an issue of trust as we go in the midst of persecution. Jesus is, for some of us here, Jesus might actually be leading us in those floodwaters and we're looking at the driver's seat and say, Jesus, do you know where you're going? This is confusing. I don't understand this, but there has to be a decision where we say, I, but I trust you. And I'll conclude with the, uh, the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians 6, 3-10, look where Jesus led the Apostle Paul. Look where Jesus led the Apostle Paul, okay? And then look at Paul's response because of how precious Jesus was to him, and I'll wrap up with this. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, 2 Corinthians 6, 3-10, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well uh, well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. I love this last line, as having nothing yet possessing everything. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. When Jesus becomes our everything, like he was for the Apostle Paul, we, are, we can be willing to lose everything for his namesake and yet rejoice because we've found Jesus to be the, the one of, of great glory and honor and adoration in our hearts. We honor him as holy. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that even if everything gets ripped from us, our health, our wealth, our very lives, that we, um, we've already gained everything in Christ Jesus. And that everything, and I will wrap up with this, that everything we've gained in Christ came about through Jesus giving his everything for us on the cross. And so the only reason, if you are here today and in Christ Jesus, that we are here today, sins covered, eternity secured, our fellowship with the Father never shaken, is because Jesus surrendered himself fully and totally to his Father's will and his Father's will was the cross. And so may we leave here being willing to do the same. Surrender ourselves to the Father's will, saying your will be done, your kingdom come in my life on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your kindness, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're God who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And we just come before you humbly. Father, we ask for forgiveness for any ways our hearts have grown cold to you and to your gospel. Father, please forgive us. for pursuing other passions, other desires, Lord Jesus, would you help us, Holy Spirit, to return to you? And I feel the Lord saying, I'm not that far from any one of us, any one of you today. He's not far. He's not far from us. For those uh, watching or maybe here today who don't know Jesus, I would just... uh, Sorry about the technical difficulty there. Thank you, Lord. You're sovereign over technical difficulties. Um, for those don't, that don't have anyone but themselves at the wheel of their lives, I just pray, Jesus, that you would speak clearly to them and you would show um, them that you're far better God than they are, that you're worthy of their trust, that any fear, any fear of loss, any fear of uh, future security or whatever, that I just, I just hear you calling your church today say, you can trust me. Come to me just as you are. You can trust me that I'm the good shepherd and I look after my sheep. And so would we uh, return today to you, Lord Jesus, with repentance and with love for you, Lord God, knowing that you're God who's rich in mercy, rich in mercy. So Lord, we love you. Help us, help us, Lord God. Have a passion for the loss that maybe we don't have. And give us the resources and the people we need to go be bold evangelists for your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, you say in Acts 1.8 that um, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we'll receive power to be your witness. So Holy Spirit, would you you empower us? Would you equip us, Holy Spirit, to boldly proclaim your goodness and your kindness in our workplaces and to our friends and to our neighbors? Because you're just simply too good to keep to ourselves, Jesus. So we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.